Think about the concept of rare. It's often synonymous with unique, valuable, precious. But what about in the context of disease? Rare diseases are defined as having an extremely low prevalence, yet an estimated 30 million Americans have one. That's one in 10 people. Listen as we uncover some of the inspiring stories of lives touched by rare disease and see how in the end, we all have rare in common. I'm your host, Andrew Stratton, and I have a rare disease. Since my diagnosis with partial lipodystrophy at age 37, I've become a voice for my community, first through the creation of the patient foundation, Lipodystrophy United, and now through public outreach and national awareness campaigns. We are on the road in Seattle at ACMG's annual clinical genetics meeting. We're really excited to have the rare opportunity to speak directly with members of the medical genetics community. The timing of this meeting is special as it falls during the first ever Medical Genetics Week, which is April 2nd through 6th. For more information, visit acmg.net. We're really excited to be here at ACMG and very appreciative and and honored for you to sit down and take the time because I'm sure you are quite responsible for the activities happening. Can you tell us a little bit about your role here? So my name is uh, Anthony Gregg. I'm an MD, MBA, fellow of the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists, fellow of the American College of Medical Genetics and Genomics. I'm chair of the Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology at Baylor University Medical Center in Dallas, and I'm chief of the Division of Maternal and Fetal Medicine at the same institution. I am the incoming president of the American College of Medical Genetics and Genomics. So not only, uh, Dr. Greg, we're here at ACMG, which is very exciting for us, but the timing is perfect. Yes, it is perfect. Um, This is uh, the first Medical Genetics Awareness Week. Uh, Our annual meeting will, from here going forward, uh, correspond to Medical Genetics Awareness Week. And uh, in this uh, context, we want to make the public aware of what medical genetics brings to the practice of medicine and the benefits that it brings to to patients in specific, and and really patients and their families. That is actually really exciting. I do think that um, as individuals in advocacy uh, are are, are getting more involved in in genetics and conferences like this, and really understanding that, I mean, 80% of rare diseases have a gen- genetic background. I think that's a correct statistic. Well, um, you know, I think it's hard to, hard to really come up with specific numbers. Uh, let's agree that rare disease um, has a genetic basis very, very often. And the reason I won't come down on a specific number is because as we learn more and more about the genome and people investigate the genome more and more, we're finding that that number is is only increasing. So you're the incoming president of ACMG. Uh, How did you get here? Well, for me personally, uh, believe it or not, uh, I was always averse to genetics. 
extending through college and through medical school and even through my residency. Uh, I didn't see medical genetics beyond um, Punnett squares and fruit flies, and that piece didn't appeal to me as a person that was heading towards the practice of medicine. Uh, in the early 1990s, uh, the uh, CFTR gene was cloned. Uh, I was at the University of Iowa and heard an excellent talk on the gene, basically, that causes cystic fibrosis. Okay, CF, And right. um, when, I, um, when I heard this talk, I said, it's time for me to, to get past this aversion and realize that genetics and um, genes are going to become a common conversation. More than uh, a fruit the, fly. In, in the practice of medicine, yes, in human disease. And so I decided very late uh, to do a fellowship in, um, in medical genetics. Uh, I was very fortunate uh, that uh, my program director, Art Baudet, at Baylor College of Medicine in Houston, uh, accepted a obstetrician maternal fetal medicine to come into his program. Uh, I had an outstanding experience uh, learning molecular genetics, uh, learning mouse genetics, not fruit fly genetics, right. learning mouse genetics. Okay. And uh, from there, um, it's really uh, opened uh, incredible doors for me. So I can see a real compliment that for, from that, though, because you were um, working with women and, and babies, right, in utero. Right. Yes, and, and really a common uh, concern of patients uh, in the early 90s as I was uh, learning the practice and integration of maternal fetal medicine with genetics was that families um, were very slow to adopt uh, any sort of genetic testing. And the rationale was that there was not an opportunity to change or treat or alter what seemed inevitable in terms of this fetus, now neonate, now child, now adult, having a rare condition. Uh, what we've learned over time is that uh, if we can provide information to patients and families, uh, they have the opportunity uh, then to maybe change where they deliver their baby. Uh, what physicians are involved early on in the transition from in utero life to ex utero life so that babies can have the most optimal um, development. So it's more than uh, what some people uh, would describe as you had only two options, continue the pregnancy or discontinue the pregnancy. There's a whole lot of gray in between, and we offer through diagnosis the opportunity to, to put in safety nets around babies and families to allow for the social needs of those families uh, to begin to um, uh, be a part of their care. So in your answer, you talked about providing information. Um, can you break down some of the kind of scary terms that uh, you might need to talk about? And how, how do you explain that to a family? Um, yeah, I think, um, uh, first of all, it's really, really important that patients get accurate and complete information. Much of what we do in the, in the pregnancy realm is at least on the, on the broad public health scale is screening. And 
people who undergo or elect to have genetic screening tests need to realize that screening tests have false positives and false negatives associated with them. In other words, just like a mammogram uh, will identify an area that's concerning, it's not a final diagnosis. And so in the realm of prenatal genetic screening, mm-hmm. it's really important that patients not get too anxious when they receive a positive result because there's a next step. And the next step is a diagnostic test called amniocentesis or chorionic villus sampling if we're early enough in the pregnancy. Okay. And through through those two, either of those two uh, diagnostic tests, we can then presumably eliminate the false positives and say this is what your child has in terms of a condition. And, and patients then want information. And so the earlier we provide this genetic diagnosis prenatally, the earlier patients have to begin to formulate what are their questions, how can we get these questions answered, and so forth. And it's important for us to reach out to the rare disease community so that patients can learn from families who have children that are impacted by rare disease, uh, to learn how they've managed and coped, and they ultimately plug into the rare disease community for information from people who are really the most knowledgeable uh, about what they will be going through uh, with their child. One of your first steps is to say, okay, reach out to you know this organization. Um, for example, right, if there's patient organizations for a specific disease, is that correct? That's right. And, um, you know, we generally will we'll look to uh, rare disease, the rare disease community uh, through, through websites. We have to vet some of these. I think responsible physicians want to make sure that they're vetting uh, these, uh, these particular websites. Now, I should back up a little bit because there are many layers of training in the obstetric community. The general obstetrician gynecologist might pr- do the initial screening okay. that leads to a positive result. And there are gonna be a small number of all patients that are screened are gonna have a positive screening result. To sort out that screening result and establish a diagnosis, patients typically will will see a maternal fetal medicine physician or a maternal fetal medicine geneticist physician or a geneticist physician that that is capable of performing diagnostic testing. So there's a sort of a three-tiered approach. The medical geneticist is very capable of attaching the patient to the rare disease community. That's part of their typical training. Uh, They know the resources uh, that are out there. They know how to tap in. And uh, the value really to families and patients once that communication and interaction is started is is really uh, incredible. So this sounds really, I I mean, ideal and fantastic. Um, What about for centers where... Uh, there's not, maybe not as many resources that you as you have it. The more rare a condition is, the more uh, likely uh, the patient will have to travel farther to get 
the expertise. Now, we should say that telehealth has really um, advantaged the patient-doctor relationship because now we can do consultation even across state lines right. so that patients aren't inconvenienced by the travel to a city to obtain um, complete and comprehensive Yes, yeah, so, I mean, technology, when we're talking about this, technology in all areas is helping, right? Exactly. I think people are aware of uh, treatment for rare diseases is, is coming increasingly uh, on the forefront. And um, I'm deeply excited about the treatments for rare diseases because it takes the focus of the geneticist and expands its scope of medical practice, but expands what the public perception is of genetics. I have so many patients that say, well, if you diagnose something, you can't fix it, right? Yeah. And today, so almost they might not even want a diagnosis if, you, if they find out you can't fix it. That's right. And so they don't understand completely the value of a diagnosis from the standpoint of early decision-making, um, interventions um, on, you know, I have patients as a maternal fetal medicine physician, I have patients that move to different counties because there's a school system that can take care of children with disabilities, the, the county or neighbor or, or city have invested in programs for children with disabilities, other counties less so, or they're financially strapped. So an early diagnosis can allow families to make decisions that are important to them. Uh, I recently had a couple that decided they were moving out of Dallas to Houston because that's where they had more family support. Right. And so um, uh, the, I, I think they, that people don't fully understand what an early diagnosis brings, and certainly genetic testing brings the potential for early diagnosis. Um, but uh, now we're in a, not only a diagnosis part of our contribution to medical practice, because of all of that work that's been done around the genome and around large databases, we've now been able to pool this information to bring treatments on the forefront. Yes. And not just medical treatments that are geared towards specific variants or pathogenic variants within disease genes, but now we have the opportunity to um, use uh, strings of nucleic acids or strings of, of uh, complementary DNA fragments to turn on and turn off genes, to change the way genes are configured so that proteins can be made more properly or properly. So, okay, you've, there's a diagnosis um, and you've connected to the patient. In the case of possible treatment or therapy. Can you give me kind of some basics that somebody would need to know or think about? Sure. Um, as, you, as you and I mentioned, um, rare disease often has uh, some gene or change in a gene relationship. Understanding the specifics of those changes are critical 
to understanding how one might treat a change in a gene. Increasingly, what we've learned is that specific changes in, the, in a gene are amenable to very specific therapies. So we have to get into what is a gene and um, what is going on at the molecular level. So a gene is really a row of molecules that we call nucleotides or nucleic acids. Okay. And they're labeled A, T, G, and C in all sorts of jumbled combinations. Um, billions of, of A, C, T, and Gs make up our genome. And those A, C, T, and Gs within a gene are required to be in specific orders. If they're out of order or chunks are missing or chunks are duplicated, we get changes in the gene that lead ultimately to changes in a protein. And it's a protein within a cell that ultimately determines a cell's function. So the cells of our liver have certain proteins that were turned on or turned off. Right. And those that turning on or turning off allows a liver cell to function as a liver cell. The cells that help with our vision in the retina of the eye are producing proteins that are different than those in the liver and that allows those cells in the eye to work properly. So if genes are um, uh, changed or altered, and it can happen naturally um, in, in nature, this, this happens by chance. Uh, sometimes this happened by chance centuries ago, and that chance centuries ago is what's been carried down through family uh, lineages. And isn't that the first time it's called no Novo? In De Novo. De Novo. De Novo changes uh, can occur in any sperm or any egg. Okay. And um, heritable changes are what we think of when we think about changes that have occurred sometime in our family's past. Correct. And so those changes of A, T, G, and C lend themselves to an opportunity for medicines to either correct uh, the A, T, G, and C change that occurred so that a protein is either more functional or completely corrected in terms of its uh, uh, need to work inside of a cell. So uh, the therapies today are nucleic acids that sit on top of uh, that DNA or that, those other nucleic acids. They, they pair in nature anyway. And in sitting on top of, they can alter the way a protein is put together. I'm so impressed with how clearly you're explaining this because this is, um, it is and can be incredibly scary and intimidating to think about. Um, what I wish we had was a schoolhouse rock version of this. I feel I can totally see you in a schoolhouse rock video right yeah. now with ATC and G. This is exactly the struggle we have as clinicians speaking to our patients. Yes. Because um, generally speaking, we, we have the information in our fingertips. 
or you know at our at our lips but but the words we use sometimes are too complex and we do need to boil it down to a t g's and c's yeah. um, one of the ways i describe uh, changes in in our genome uh, in a broad sense to patients when I speak to them is I ask them to imagine our chromosomes, which are our A, T, Gs, and Cs, broken up into books. And we all, in a normal circumstance, get 23 books from our father that come to us via the sperm, 23 books that come from our mother through the egg at the time of conception, we now have 46 books or chromosomes in every cell of the body. But imagine that you're looking at these books on a shelf and the old fashioned chromosome analysis was counting those books on the shelf. Okay. And we could count very easily the two number one books from mom and dad, the two number two books from mom and dad all the way across based on their size. We could also see if there were a, an entire book missing or duplicated. An example of an extra book would be a case maybe of a, a child or fetus with Down syndrome. Okay. Uh, there's an extra number 21 book. Today, the technology has gotten so good that we can also open the books after amniocentesis or CVS and see if there are chunks or paragraphs of information that are duplicated or deleted. Or missing, yes. And so if there's an important part of a story, a novel, then we're missing a paragraph or chapter. We, we don't have the same information any longer. This visual is amazing. This is so fantastic. The, the next is we get down to the word or grammar level. That's the ATGs and Cs. And so with the A, T, Gs, and Cs, we can see that there's a word misspelled or a couple of words out of order that might alter the meaning of a sentence. Uh, you, you know yourself that if you don't put the punctuation properly in a sentence, that we uh, have trouble uh, sometimes uh, interpreting that sentence. And so that's where genome sequencing is. Genome sequencing is down to the, the, um, the word and grammar uh, sentence structure uh, rather than the entire book. Now, when we talk about sequencing the genome, we're talking about understanding the A, T, Gs, and Cs through all the books. When we talk about sequencing the exome, we're talking about the A, T, Gs, and Cs in the really important or what we think are the most important sentences and paragraphs within those books. So we all know that some of the books we read, a couple pages here and there, we can eliminate and not miss much. That's the cliff notes. Uh, the cliff notes in, are the exome, and the entire book is the genome. So that I really didn't expect um, this kind of lesson. So I really appreciate that. I think that this conversation will be incredibly beneficial to individuals in rare disease um, trying to think about or understand or even explain it to their families. Sure. And this is a really beautiful, uh, concise way. Um, to take the information and visualize it. So I will never look at my bookshelf the same. <laughs> so this bookshelf idea is, you know, 
very exciting for me because now I feel like I can use this as a tool to help my community as a patient advocate. Can you give me an example briefly about how we're using technology um, today to like alter uh, a sentence that you were just talking about in a book? Sure. Uh, the, the condition spinal muscular atrophy uh, is, is, I think, becoming a condition that more and more um, the public is becoming aware of. One reason they're becoming aware of this is because two professional organizations uh, that, that manage or um, guide um, uh, the obstetric care provider, one of those is the American College of Medical Genetics and Genomics, the other is the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists, both recommend pan-ethnic screening of all pregnant women or women desiring to become pregnant, they recommend that they be screened for spinal muscular atrophy. Okay. So we're gonna see more and more a prenatal and early neonatal diagnosis of this condition. We're very fortunate that's a condition where there's a rearrangement in one of those sentences within one of those books and the therapy now is to sort of introduce a guide sentence to lay on top of the damaged sentence. Okay. And that reconfigures the damaged sentence, if you will. And so that the protein made or the information conveyed from that sentence to the cell is now improved. What is the medical term for that guide sentence? Uh, it's an uh, it's an oligonucleotide. Okay. Uh, so it's ATGs and Cs uh, in put together in a very short string. Again, I mean, I talk about SMA and I think about SMA a lot. We have in rare disease. I mean, follow the community. Incredible stories of perseverance. But now I, you know, I'll never look at them quite the same because of this bookshelf analogy, which I really appreciate. Again, this is. I mean, exciting week for you as the new president uh, and medical genetics awareness week. And uh, thank you again. I just want to say a word about the American College of Medical Genetics and Genomics is a very unique professional organization. Our members are medical geneticists and laboratory geneticists with special training in cytogenetics, biochemical genetics, and molecular genetics from a laboratory perspective. And having the opportunity for medical geneticists and laboratory geneticists to meet and not be siloed in their individual disciplines yes. has really advanced the field of medical genetics and how it interplays with health and disease. And we also are an organization that includes genetic counselors. So now we have uh, all avenues of genetics intermixing to bring about the best health care for families, for individuals. We're gradually uh, creeping into uh, the understanding of genetics and genomics in patients who are healthy or without specific, specifically identified conditions. And the catch-all phrase here is precision health.
Andrea, thank you very much for inviting me to be here. Thanks, Dr. Greg. Bye-bye. This episode was recorded live at the 2019 American College of Medical Genetics and Genomics Annual Clinical Genetics Meeting in Seattle, Washington. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Rare in Common podcast. If you enjoyed the program, you can subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Rare in Common. Click. Listen. Feel. Feel. 